We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the Barcelona Podcast, where you the hottest breaking stories from the camp know. If you haven't done so yet or are new to the podcast, please consider subscribing via iTunes at tbpod.link backslash iTunes is also in the show notes in the description or any other podcasting apps, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or the like. Please subscribe no matter where you hear this podcast as if this is your jumping on point, congratulations. This is show number 50 of the Barcelona podcast. It's a big one. We've got a lot planned for you. And if you're here from the start or just joining us now, thanks for joining us and congratulations to you, Frances, for show number 50 of having to put up with me for not 50 straight weeks because we used to do two shows a week, but 50 shows in total. I know it's been a pain, man. You really are unbearable. Um, I think, you know, we're really, really proud of what we've achieved so far. And Dan, obviously, I couldn't do it without you, clearly, because you're amazing. So I'm um, very proud of us and um, very proud of all our audience for putting up with us for so many weeks. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how you guys do it. Um, but I'm going to start the show today by reading a review that was left on the iTunes store in New Zealand. And it was left by Jamie. Jamie says... After accumulating a long list of football-related podcasts to listen to over the years, I'm generally set in my ways and listen to a select few. Very few have commanded my attention as much as the Barcelona podcast, however. Even though Barca is my central football club to focus on, the depth and quality of the analysis and discussion on this show is unrivaled, and I recommend it to everyone, Barca fans or not. You lads are doing a fantastic job, and every pod which is released makes my day a little more interesting. And he says cheers. Now, I think this is the first review we've gotten from someone who is not really a Barca fan that decides to listen to the pod. So, Jamie, it really does mean a lot, uh, your kind words and, and the fact that you're part of our community. So, welcome. And if you've been here for a while, thank you for putting up with us. And um, I really do hope that you enjoyed today's show. In the Barcelona podcast, with a big 50, la pregunta is, is there a refereeing conspiracy against Barca in La Liga? Then we're going to move on to La Tabla and Dan's going to be looking at the latest results and standings for Barca B and Barca Femeni. Then we're going to move on to La Bolsa and we're going to be talking about players who are trading up and down in El Kiosco. El Kiosco is really, really busy today. We've got a lot of stories and different um, Barca protagonists that we've been talking about um, and the Catalan media has as well. And we're going to finish up with our favorite part of the show, which is La Ronda, which is the quick fire round of listener questions. The Barcelona podcast with a big 55-0, starts right here. So let's start right with La Gran Pregunta. 
is there a refereeing conspiracy against Barcelona? And this coming after the main referee from the match, Barcelona against Valencia, with, of course, the Lionel Messi goal that was clearly over the touchline. Everybody in the stadium, everybody at home could see it. The only two who didn't see that it was over the touchline was the linesman and the head referee, that being Iglesias Villanueva. And since then, Villanueva is ignoring questions from journalists, doesn't really want to talk to anybody about it. And I guess... From that perspective, who could blame him? But this is now stirring about not just the first time, but a number of occasions when results or things have not necessarily gone the way of FC Barcelona. So now there's rumors of this. And Frances, I'm going to let you go first on this. What are your reasoning for or against there being some kind of conspiracy? Right, so let's put things in, in place here. The game against Valencia was horrendous in terms of refereeing. Um, as we, as I've been saying in social media and at BarcaBlog.com, with my analysis and different articles that we've been publishing, the, the game itself wasn't horrendous. I think the, the problem was that referee was not very good at looking, you know? And um, the whole of the debate after the game was about whether VAR was needed, but actually all that was really essential is that the, the referee opened his eyes. Um, obviously, I was watching from home and for me it was very clear. Um, so, you know, it's easy to say when you're sat at home, but... Um, Everyone around the stadium, Jordi Alba spoke after the game. Pretty much every Barca player celebrated. There were six or seven that just ran to the corner. Um, there was four or five Valencia players who just put their hands down and basically they were going towards the touchline um, to, to restart the game. But um, the referee didn't want to give it. Um, he didn't want to listen to his linesman. And understandably, the whole of the Kule community um, around the world is, is, you know, is horrified by the fact that the, the referees just didn't want to give a goal that ultimately would have gained two points against um, arguably the biggest rival we've got, we got for La Liga this season, obviously second place Valencia, who were very strong at home. Now, if you pair this with last year's Betis game, in which the ball went in by nearly 50 centimetres and it was still not given, and to be honest, that, we, that was not the reason why we lost La Liga, but because obviously mathematics stay different. But had those been had those points been given then, um, the La Liga race would have been much closer, so there would have been a bigger chance for Barca to um, overlap for the first position. So undoubtedly, when you put the Betis game last year and the Valencia game this year into the same pot, it's understandable why there are so many people who are so annoyed um, about the referee and being below par and in these occasions not favouring Barca at all. So while I would agree with you that the refereeing was pretty abysmal, and I think I think everyone kind of admitted that, and it was a, it was a difficult situation. But I would say you don't really know how the game would have turned out if that ball had gone in. You know that might have been something that reinvigorated Valencia, and so it it's difficult to get into a game of what ifs. But clearly that was a goal and, and a missed opportunity. Now my thing is that with the state of La Liga. They just seem behind, and I know that they have announced that the league would institute VAR next season after being vehemently against it for so long, the league of presidents saying it was too expensive for a while. It's not even that it's VAR with, you know, that that additional referee with the uh, ability to look at things through the truck and look at that and then call into the referee. It's even that there's simple goal line technology that other leagues in the world have had for a while 
because even goal line technology would have got this done. It's not even VAR where you would where you look back on cards, you look back on incidents, and you look back on on things like that that are are even more detailed than just knowing if the ball went over the line. This is just simple goal line technology that should have already been instituted. And it's a lot of crying over spilt milk now. And hopefully next season, there's going to be some learning curve for La Liga. They're going to take their bumps. But hopefully VAR works out successfully and we don't have to deal with this in future La Liga seasons. That said, where I stand on all of this about a conspiracy and all that, I think it's a lot of hogwash. I stand with Ernesto Valverde on this one clearly. And while I know Valverde doesn't get the same kind of difficult questions that Luis Enrique does and then doesn't get the heat that Luis Enrique did, he didn't attack the referee or the linesman afterwards. Instead, he just questioned the need for better technology throughout the league and more focus on getting things correct. And so his exact quote that he said afterwards was, I think we all agree that in these plays so evident, the topic of VAR is not about re-refereeing the games, but it was clear that it had crossed and we are still with this issues that are put on a, put us on the spot. The other day against Malaga, there was a ball that went out, we scored, and it benefited us. And so I think that's also the big point, that Valverde admitted that a few weeks ago against Malaga, Barcelona had this go in their favor, that it wasn't done properly, if you will. So I would say that there is no refereeing conspiracy. That's a silly idea to me. But I would say that Liga as a whole certainly needs to get better. I do agree. I agree with that um, overall. I think that the fact that La Liga says that there's no money, that's that's nonsense, isn't it? I mean, La Liga have got TV rights that are, you know, worth hundreds of millions of euros. And um, that really, there's no reasoning behind it. Um, also, the fact that, you know, even if... Because if, no one really knows how much VAR is going to cost, but I'm assuming and I'm hoping they've done their due diligence and they've priced it up. And they must be able to afford that because obviously it's coming in next season. But, you know, how expensive is it to buy two guys... To referees that are standing by the gut by the goal line, that's not very expensive at all. You know that that's probably five or six people going to the stadium would pay for that. So I just don't buy the nonsense. I think the heart of the story is that La Liga once again are behind major European leagues in terms of progress, and uh, it's very sort of backwards thinking. Now, in terms of the conspiracy, I think yeah, of course, you know Barca were hand on by. In Valencia and in Betis last year, and you know that that did cost us. No one's arguing against that. And um, Real Madrid do get help sometimes. And uh, if you put everything in the balance, maybe they are favored, you know. But um, I mean, personally, this is something that has been going on for decades. I've seen it for nearly 20, 25 years now. And uh, I'm, it's nothing that surprises me anymore. I'm not saying that it's right, I'm just saying that it's not really news as such. Now, having said that as well, Barca and Madrid are the two clubs that are the most favored in La Liga, you know, because if you if you support someone like Leganés or Getafe or even Sporting Fijón, those are clubs that really get hard done by, by referees and uh, the mistakes the referees make in their favor are very, very, you know, very rare. And the ones that are against them could actually cost the future. And in Sporting de Gijón, I remember around a decade ago, they got relegated because of a couple of mistakes in the final two games. So, you know, as much as Barca and Madrid have got the spotlight on them the whole time, and when a, a mistake is made against them, obviously everyone is puts that, you know, goes horrified and uh, starts complaining. So, you know, people, people do hear it. I think that overall Barca and Madrid both, and I'm putting them both in the same pot here, um, are the two clubs that actually are the most favored by referees 
It's just unfortunate that Barca did get this this time round. And with Barcelona and Real Madrid, they're also usually attacking and getting more opportunities per game than opposition. So there are more chances for referees to miss penalties in their box when they're on the attack and things of that ilk. And so I also think that there is such a focus on the games that Barcelona and Real Madrid play week in and week out. So I would say that without watching every game of the Liga every week, let's say those games where Malaga does play Leganes, who gets the calls there? And is it matter if somebody does get the calls? I think it's just a matter of holding each referee to the highest standard that we can, and we'll see where we go from here. And the other thing about the conspiracy that, again, just really frustrates me is that it all depends on where this kind of thing is coming from, where the sources are. And we've talked about sources before where, of course, the Madrid-based media is going to paint a certain narrative that Madrid are hard done by and Barcelona get all the calls. And then the media in Barcelona are going to say the same thing. And then the sources in the UK are going to say things like Ernesto Valverde said he hates Andre Gomes and isn't going to play him anymore. But obviously they have nothing close to a quote and it's just silly. So when you're reading some piece of content or you're hearing something from our podcast, another podcast or YouTube or wherever you get the Barcelona news, those quotations and some of those sources are really important to pay attention to. So that's where, again, I say with the conspiracy, of course, decades ago, we know it's truth that Barcelona were obviously hard done by because there was a, a direct correlation between the club and that vote of nationalism and having the clubs that are that were backing the crown, having those clubs succeed more than Barcelona, which stood obviously for more than a club for Catalonian independence. And I think it's it's much more nuanced now. It's less political. And there's so much money tied up in FC Barcelona being in La Liga, et cetera, et cetera. And so having two clubs that are worth so much money, that's where the scrutiny is going to be. And so there's so much going into it. I just, again, I want to downplay conspiracy and say that each referee is going to give his best every game. And to that point, though, if it looks like the referees aren't good enough, then there need to be new referees in charge of the Liga games. Frances, do you have anything more on this? Yeah, just to say that I agree with the point you just made in terms of the referees not being good enough, but that is precisely why there should be investment in order to help them. You know, I do understand they're human and I do understand they make mistakes. And I definitely get that they need to make crucial decisions literally within half tenths of a second. But that's precisely what you should invest heavily so they, they got some help in order to make the best decision. Um, is there a conspiracy against Barca? No, there isn't. It's just that the referee in, in Spain needs to improve in terms of quality and there needs to be investment to, 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 to cause that improvement. Yeah, so I think that answers the question. We both say there is no conspiracy, but obviously we agree with everybody that things after this weekend this past weekend, should I say, need to be better. So let's get to our second topic of the day, and that is La Tabla. And this will be a quick segment, actually, this week, Frances. Barcelona's draw with Valencia keeps them four points up on Valencia, 35 to 31, the points, and eight points still over Atletico Madrid and Real Madrid after those two teams won their games last weekend. Barcelona will be facing Celta de Vigo. So unless you get this on the first day it's been out, then Barcelona is still up on Valencia. If not, after that game against Celta de Vigo and the rest of the league action, things might have changed. So let's quickly go to Barcelona B. Now, we did see some of the B players with Barcelona as they advance against Real Murcia on the two-legged 
Copa del Rey round of 32. And Barcelona B, it was Carlos Alenia, it was Oriol Busquets, it was David David Costas, and it was Jose Arnaith. But those players also played a match that didn't go so well last weekend, a 1-1 draw against Ameria, who is at the bottom of the table, just below them now, as we should say, as Barcelona B are now 18th in the table, one point clear of the relegation zone ahead of Lorca and Ameria, who both have 17 points. And Almeria was a team that they should have beat, you have to say. Anthony Lozano, the Honduran forward, got the goal for Barcelona B. Next up is local opponent in Raus. And I think the bigger picture from all this, Frances, is we're seeing that... I'll take a, a pro and a con out of this. The con is that we are seeing that Saguna division is a lot harder, and Barcelona B can't just walk through it. It's, gonna, it's a difficult division, and while English teams and the Premier League, the championship, English... That pyramid seems to be the one that gets the most plaudits with having the best depth because obviously championship teams sometimes have as much money as lower level Serie A or La Liga teams, if you will. But we're seeing with the Copa del Rey, and I guess this is a positive and negative for Barcelona B, that those lower levels of Spain can hold their own. We just saw in the last round of Copa del Rey, Yeda beat Real Sociedad, Numancia beat Malaga, and Formentera beat Bilbao. And so they all went down to these lower-level squads who clearly have some quality and can handle playing in two competitions and do well in the Segunda division as well. So Barcelona B are going to have to figure out what they're doing on the field and worry about themselves if they're going to get some results. Exactly. There is plenty of quality in Segunda division. And, um, you know, it's funny you're saying that um, they should have beaten Almeria, and I fully agree with you. But um, Almeria was in the Primera División for, I think it was three or four consecutive seasons, and they only got relegated recently. So... For Barca's second team to go in there and get a draw, traditionally, would have been a good result. And I do think, based on what we've seen from um, Barca B, so Gerard Lopez's team, in the last, I'm going to say, six weeks, it's actually a positive, but obviously linked to the games and results that we're getting before. It's not necessarily um, helping them come out of the hole. And I am beginning to say the hole, um, because, you know, 18th in Segunda División is not great at the moment at all. Um, having said that, and I always try and put a positive spin in pretty much everything, hopefully our listeners have realized that, um, it is great experience, you know, like um, when Alenia and um, Uriol Busquets, etc., etc., came up to the first team, I'm sure they appreciate it much more, you know, because they're not having to go to Almeria and struggle, they're coming to the Camp Nou and in a way playing alongside, I don't know, Piquet, Sergi Roberto and, and the rest of the first teamers makes, you know, is really a great opportunity that they really have to make the most of. Um, so I really do hope that the Barca B team starts picking up some points here and there. Um, I still believe that the first point and the first purpose of the Barca B team has to continue to be to form the players. And I do think that this struggle that they're obviously going through at the moment is part of the learning process. And in a way, I'm happy they're going through it. Obviously, it would be better when we come out the other end, and I'm sure we will because, you know, Barca B traditionally and throughout the years, they normally start the seasons quite slowly. I'm talking about when they've been in Segunda División A. They normally start the seasons quite slowly and they pick up in the second half of, 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 you know, after the Christmas break and, you know, January, February, simply because of their youth and the, the, the time they had to gel together. Normally, they start picking up, understanding each other better, and um, they improve at the end. So hopefully that will be repeated this season under Gerard Lopez. 
For the Barca Femini, they actually had an off week, so nothing to update with them. They're still sitting but three points behind Atletico Madrid in the table after losing to Granadilla Tenerife two weeks ago now. And Real Batiste is next up this weekend, so we'll update you on Barca Femini next week after they get back in action after having a little bit of a layoff now to regroup and figure out what to do after they've fallen to second in the table. Time for La Bolsa, Frances. Yeah, I want to say something um, on the Barca Femini. Um, I realized too late, but um, you know Tony Duggan, our Barca striker, she was playing, I think it was 20 minutes away from my house earlier in the week, and I did not go. And I am gutted because really I didn't quite know about it. I knew that obviously England were playing at home, and I knew that Tony Duggan obviously had been selected, but I didn't put two and two together, so I really should have gone. I think it was Monday or Tuesday night. And uh, I realized too late, so I'm really, really sorry that I didn't go and, and see our great striker in action. I know that they won the England ladies, and I'm very happy about that. But um, yeah, hopefully next time. Right, so let's move on to La Bolsa then. Um, I've tried to sprinkle it a bit this week. Um, obviously, you could be doing La Bolsa every week and, and talking about Messi, so um, because he is just the best footballer to ever play, play the game. But um, I've gone for different people today, so... Trading up this week, and I'm delighted to say that he is first, is Carlos Alaña. Undoubtedly, he was the best player against Murcia in midweek, and um, he's playing at first team level, and he's showing his class. You know, he, I would say it is clear that he doesn't have a place in the first team as a starter yet. Um, his passing and purpose was obviously there, and his vision was and is always spot on. However, his accuracy wasn't always there. So you could see that although he's trying his best, there are some things in his game that he needs to improve, but he really added a lot. He is, as he gets more experience, he's going to be a much more key player. Um, he's getting that experience in Segunda División A, as we just mentioned. And I really would say that out of all the youngsters that were playing um, in La Copa against Murcia in midweek, he was the one that looked the most, the most ready. He was uh, composed on the ball. He knew exactly how to drive the team. And, you know, if he'd taken his t-shirt off, or, or there wasn't any, no, no, I don't want him to strip in the middle of the camp, no. But um, if he wasn't wearing a number and he didn't have his name, you couldn't really see that that was an 18-year-old just thrown into the middle of the camp, no. So definitely someone who is mentally ready and, you know, in time will make the Barca team first team, no doubt. Also trading up this week, we've got the guy that scored the winner at the Mestalla, that's Jordi Alba. Um, I think that not having Alba in the team, and you know, with all due respects to Dinier, who has been decent in the last, I would say, fortnight, not having Alba in the team really leaves a hole, especially after the departure of Neymar, we've got that left flank a little bit sort of left to its own devices in the way that you know Dembele reco recovers and he joins the team again. But I think Jordi Alba... He's adding something this season that he just hasn't done in the last couple of years. Um, similarly to the way that he does with Spain, he's really sharp. He's, he really likes overlapping and combining. Obviously, his understanding with Iniesta is one of Barca's not-so-secret weapons that we keep using pretty much every game. Um, his physicality has improved this season. His stamina has as well, and you could see that he's angry, you know? Uh, I always compare um, Jordi Alba to an angry little squirrel that, you know, someone's taking the, the, the nuts away and he's just fighting to get them back. To me, that's what Jordi Alba does every single week. And uh, it's great to see him having his fire back and um, obviously getting 
the one point at the Mestalla, which, as we said at the beginning of the show, should have definitely been three. But at least the point we got from the Mestalla against Valencia um, it was thanks to Jordi Alba's genius. So really pleased to say that Jordi Alba is trading up this week. And you usually have three, Frances. So I have a guess. I think it's Denise Suarez. Is that your third? No. No, it isn't. Well, can I make an argument for Denise Suarez then for my La Bolsa? <laughs> go, go, go. So, yeah, that was the one guy that I was hoping you'd mention, actually, Denise Suarez, after playing against Real Murcia. And I want to bring up, though, that it's tough because Real Murcia is a third-division side. So you'd think that Denise Suarez and any player who plays for the Barcelona first team, Paco Acacer, Alessio Vidal, they all had good games. And, you know, you said Elena was your man of the match, but I've heard Vidal was a man of the match. I've heard Alcacer. I've heard Denise Suarez. And so... For me, while it's a positive thing that he played so well against Real Murcia, he seemed to be the one first-team player that was by far outclassing the third-division side. And that's also not to take anything away from Real Murcia, because we looked in Real Madrid had quite the time with a bunch of their young first-teamers against Fuenlabrada going on in the Copa del Rey the day before. So again, not to take anything away from these teams at the lower levels who are very physical and play to the best of their abilities. That said... Denise Suarez had just a number of moves. His assist to Jose Arnaith for the fifth goal, his goal in combination with Sergi Roberto, it just seems like for fans crying out for Barcelona's style and getting back to moving the ball quickly and passing the ball quickly with those short, tiny passes and playing that tiki-taka style and feeling like Ernesto Valverde is getting away from that, I just get continued to be puzzled by seeing Denise Suarez in these competitions doing as well as he's he's been doing. If he, for that last second half in particular when he really came alive, if he plays for 20 minutes in La Liga for the 45 minutes he played in Copa del Rey of that quality, then you've got a guy who should be coming off the bench and who can make an impact in the Liga. And he's a guy that when we talk about all the possible transfers in January, I don't want to see him leave the club because I just think that he's one of those that we're going to feel that we're missing out on a player that I think could succeed given more minutes. I agree. I think that Denis Suarez would have been the fourth in my list if I were to pick someone else. Um, as you said at the start when you started talking just just now, um, I would say that Denis Suarez needs to do that against first-team level opposition and then I'll be able to say and, and, and you know celebrate his performance. Obviously, I'm happy about it, but when he does it in, in La Liga or against European competition, I'll be, I'll be even more impressed. So, uh, my third one was Vermalen. You couldn't, he couldn't have traded down anymore, so and he can only be trading up. Um, I think that um, his two consecutive games, this is going to sound very obvious, but he hasn't gotten injured, as most people were predicting, and I'm delighted to say that. Um, he was, in a way, thrown into the team, um, most people didn't trust him, but you know he continued to do what he does best, which is play football. And when he's fit, he's, he's quite good, actually. Um, I thought that he was calm and controlled, both in Valencia um, and against Murcia. He obviously has the experience. He knows his positioning. He knows what he needs to do. And um, he obviously, he's not a force of nature anymore for obvious reasons. But I think that what he needed to do, he did correctly. He wasn't necessarily beaten too many times at all. Um, he was always supportive in, in terms of building moving forward. And I really do think that he did fairly well. So, <laughs> and in a way, I don't know when we're going to be able to um, have him trade him up again. So I thought that we'll include Vermalen this week uh, just to celebrate the fact that he has helped the team, played two consecutive games, and 
check this out. He's only two consecutive games away from equaling his best run as a Barca starter. So basically, if he starts four consecutive games, that's the most games he's played one after the other for the last four seasons. And that's an incredible thing. And so while, yes, you're right that it's not the biggest deal that Vermeulen is doing well, he was put in a huge spot against Valencia. He was the player that we had to circle. And, you know, I, I've mentioned before on the podcast, I'm actually leaving for Barcelona in less than 24 hours, and I'm going to the match at Celta de Vigo. And while we were watching the Valencia match, my wife and I, Vermeulen was the one player that I kept saying, well, you don't really need to know his name. I don't expect to see him. We expect PK and Umtiti to be at the back. But again, he's a, he was the, the critical player that has been in a rotation role all year and hasn't really seen much time. And for all the players against Valencia that had to step up and had to step up big, it was certainly Van Ellen. Yeah, and you know, I thought it was good that, that he could get a mention here. Um, we try and support all our players and you know, he hasn't really done anything wrong this week. So it was good to celebrate his performances. Now, the part that I don't necessarily enjoy too much, which is the trading down, um, I've got Gerardo Lufeo this week. Um, I thought that in Mestalla, he was very poor. Um, he did try, you know, and that is something that you cannot take away from the guy. He did try to break the rival defense as much as he could. Um, he was making the pitch wider by being sort of attached to the right wing, um, trying to drift towards the middle whenever possible. He tried to run behind defenders. He tried to run at defenders. But he just didn't get very lucky at all um, in terms of effectiveness. Um, he was dispossessed several times. And basically, he added nothing. I found myself uh, during the game at, at Valencia, particularly, I mean, from the start, but particularly after the half, just wishing and hoping that Paco Alcácer would be given the game. Um, against, let's not forget, he was a Valencia, game, a Valencia player before. So having a game against his former club would have really motivated him. But for whatever reason, um, Valverde thought differently. Now, moving forward to the midweek game um, against Murcia, I'm just going to give you a number. De Lufeo was dispossessed 22 times in the game um, against uh, Murcia, with which all due respect, in the third tier of Spanish football. And they didn't really play the best 11 because they actually, and this is going to sound weird, they reserved the best players for the weekend game in, in Segunda División B. So I think De Lufeo, you know, he did, he did hit the post. You know, you can take that away from him. But I do think that he was continuously struggled to bring anything positive and to break you know his markers and such and yeah of course sometimes he he ran past them and you know you can't take that away but I think the overall feeling is that he's getting to a point in which he's trying just way too hard and he doesn't seem to know when to run at defenders which is which is you know you have to do as a winger and if he wasn't doing it we'll criticize him for that but also to calm it down you know you don't have to go crazy every single time you don't have to run across from the wing all the way to the other side of the pitch like he did three or four times there's no need to do that just pass the ball you know at Barca it's all about the ball running quicker than the players because you know let's face it Barca are not and they've never really been the most physical team out there but we because of our intelligence and the way that we use the ball flow then we can beat the others because if the ball is quicker than, than the players which it should be then that's the advantage done. But De Lufeo, I thought that slowed the game down, bizarrely because he's really speedy, but I thought he slowed the flow of the game down and made us really ineffective in midweek and also over the weekend. So trading down this week for me is De Lufeo. Yeah, I agree with you. De Lufeo, 
he got nothing but criticism, and I think he was the one universally against Murthia who just didn't look like he was playing with any confidence. And I think that's the big thing where while Delafeu's stock is down, for me, it's not stock that you'd sell. I think there's Kool-Aid's out there, particularly on, on social media, that are done with Delafeu and just upset with him and saying, if you couldn't play for Everton, you couldn't even basically get off their bench, then how could you be expected to be put in big spots in Barcelona? And I think he's still a young player and time has to be given because he is doing what he has to do, and I think that's where the confidence comes in. He's trying too hard because he just wants to prove himself so badly in a Barcelona uniform that he is trying to take on opposition, as you mentioned, every single time down. And for Delafeu, it's just that finishing product. It's just working in training to get your final ball, to get your shot on goal, or to get some assists in. And once you get to that touchline, to be able to put the proper ball in. And that's been the difference between a player like him or even look at the progression of Sergio Roberto over time. Roberto's runs got better from the midfield. Roberto got better with his final ball. And he went from a guy who a few years ago was down below Tiago Alcantara on the depth chart that Roberto has found his place in Barcelona's team. And at this point, he now doesn't look like he's out of place playing for Barcelona. And that's what Delefeu has to get some experience in and figure out. And once he gets that final ball, I think things will all turn around and he'll look much more confident. But I think, again, to try to sell him off and say that we're done with him, he's had his chance, is just a little bit too early for me on a player that is giving so much of himself and clearly doing what Ernesto Valverde is asking of him. It's just we have not seen that final product yet, but I think that could come. So we move on to El Kiosco. Yeah, I want to I wanna say a couple of things of the Lufeu before we do that. Um, I was listening to the press conference that Valverde gave after the Murcia game. And he was asked about all the youngsters, you know, Alanya, Uriel Busquets, Arnaiz, etc. But he got three questions regarding the Lufeu. Uh, first of all, was something quite mild. It was like, what do you think about the Lufeu's performance? And he said the typical, you know, he's trying and I'm really, that's what I'm asking him to do. So I'm very happy in the fact that you know, despite the fact that not everything was going his way the whole time, he continued to persevere. Fine. Then they asked him something else, and he pretty much repeated. And the last question they asked him about De Lufeu was, was this. They said, are you disappointed about his performance? Because obviously he wasn't giving anything away. Uh, to what Valverde really, really quickly replied, he said, no, why should I be disappointed? But the fact that the press are asking is because they must have seen something, they must have heard something, and they kept digging and digging and digging. Um, obviously, Valverde, being the calm guy that he is, didn't give anything away, but I think, and I did hear the press conference this morning, again, just to be sure, um, he, you could say that he wasn't fully satisfied. The other thing I want to say about De Lufeo is that he's always been hugely superior. When he was... Um, Cadete, we already knew about him, you know, he was signing contracts for Nike, I think he was 13 when he signed his first contract for Nike, and uh, he's been wearing the boots ever since, and, um, you know, throughout his, his career, he's always been better than the others, and he didn't have to work that hard, and because he, you know, he was always faster, and he had a better sort of goal-scoring ratio, um, he didn't perfect some areas of his game. Someone like, for example, Pedro, Pedro wasn't great throughout his um, development, but he was always good enough to get by. And he had to work incredibly hard to get there in terms of defense, in terms of positioning, in terms of dribbling, in terms of passing. But De Lufeu has never really needed to do that. Now, fast forward both their careers five to ten years, 
and Deolo Feu is not sort of he's not used to learning at the same rate that other players get and uh, when you hit professional level everyone is at the peak of their game and, and they try really hard to be even better but you know the, the question is whether Deolo Feu has it in him in order to learn at this stage in his career something that he hasn't needed to do for the last 15 years so um, I, I am positive and I do hope that he feels better but I think we can't forget the fact that that's where he's coming from yeah I, I agree with that too and that goes back to kind of what we were saying about getting these players who haven't had the opportunity to play at the level of Messi and to practice with them, and we have to give them time on that as well. So for El Kiasco, you're talking about the young players of Barcelona, and to celebrate Barcelona's 118th birthday, the club released a montage of messages from Barcelona academies from around the world, which I thought was a nice gesture. Of course, the club founded in 1899 by Swiss businessman Juan Gamper, as he would later be known by his Catalan name. And he formed the club with 11 other Swiss, English, and Catalan footballers after putting out an ad in the local paper. And so with this, we saw a lot of cool different images and infographs on social media. And particularly, I wanted to give credit to Mohamed Butt, who we interviewed back in episode 47. And he tweeted out his all-time 11 for Barcelona, something that we, uh, Frances, did on episode 43. So you can go back and listen to that to hear our opinions. And his team, I found funny, Frances, and you can respond to this, that it was almost a perfect amalgamation of our teams with Valdez being his goalie, Victor Valdez, which was your pick, Juan Segarra from the 50s, which was my pick, at the back with Ronald Koeman and Carlos Puyol, Busquets, Xavi, and Iniesta in the midfield, he had Danny Alves, who you had, and he's the one guy that I definitely should have had in my team, Danny Alves, just because I think I just, because I've seen him play and I see him now in his mid-30s playing for PSG, I think I took him for granted a little bit as I was making my list, but Danny Alves certainly deserves to be there. You had him and you had him right, and he had Cruyff on the other side, who I had. Lionel Messi was the number 10, and then he also had Laszlo Kubala, the Hungarian forward who I also had in my team up top and of course all credit to you as well Francis you went with just players you had seen and so that kind of curtailed your team and I tried to go all over the place if you will with time and so it was funny to see that Mohammed's team was a combination of the players we had and we were getting questions even this week about our favorite Barcelona legends like top five legends and so even going to one of our listener questions not to answer it too early but we got a question from Dewat 10 who are your top five Barcelona legends of all time? And so my answer would be, if you go back and look at our starting 11s, basically you can pick any five from those. Just make sure you include Messi and you've got a pretty good five aside for Barcelona. That would, that's a great idea, five aside. That would be great. Um, I haven't seen the tweet from Mohamed, um, but obviously he knows his football because he's a really intelligent guy and has followed Barca for many, many, many years. And uh, I think it's reassuring for both of us, Dan, that we don't know what we're talking about because he's picked the players that we did. So that's really good. I've done some research because I thought that um, someone somewhere asked, I must have dreamt this, but I think they did, um, about my favourite Barca moments in the last 118 years. Obviously, I haven't been born that long, so I don't really know what happened 115 years ago, for example. But I've done a bit of research and I've got something to share that I didn't know until, say, a couple of hours ago. So I've been looking back um, at my first game at the Camp Nou and I always knew that Barca were playing Bilbao and that we won 2-1. I remember that 
clearly, but I didn't quite know who played the game. So I've done some research today and these must have been, and I'm sure of this because I've got the ticket at home, in, not, not here in London, but in Barcelona, back home with my parents, um, on the 7th of November, 1992. And the Barca game that played that game was Zubizarreta on goal, then Ferrer and Eusebio, and listen, Eusebio was playing centre-half in that game, so Johan Cruyff didn't... <laughs> he was nuts. So you got Ferrer, Eusebio, and Kuman and Juan Carlos, so it, it was a back four, bizarrely, because normally it's, it was three. Then Vaquero was in the centre, together with Goicochea, so Goicochea must have been playing on the right. Stoichkov was playing on the left, as a left winger. Laudrup was the attacking midfielder. Amor was playing alongside Laudrup in that area, but obviously Amor used to drop back and, and push forward whenever needed. And then up front, there was Chiki Begi this time as well. So a really, a combination of um, different great players that played for the Dream Team, but obviously a clear representation that Cruyff just played whoever he wanted, whatever he wanted, you know? And um, goals were scored by Stoichkov and Baquero. I remember the Stoichkov game really vividly, and that's probably why he's my favorite player, a Barca player, arguably of all time. And um, yeah, I thought our listeners would wanna would wanna hear that. So yeah, 1992. And then in the second half, uh, Michelangelo Nadal, who is obviously Rafa Nadal's uncle, came on, and also Alexanko. Um, he he was a central defender, really you know really physical. He must have come to close the game um, and to secure the win. But yeah, very interesting to see that that was the lineup in my first ever game at the Camp Nou. Actually, Francesca, it was Arsacio who asked what were your top three moments for both of us, and he asked that on Twitter. And so while that was just one moment, that was your first match. Again, I already alluded to it earlier in the show that my favorite moment most likely at the Camp Nou is going to come in just about 24 hours, maybe after you've already listened to this, when I get to see my first match as well. So hopefully it's a good day for Barcelona. And so I was thinking about those top three matches. And again, you and I are not 118 years old or more. So we don't remember all of those times. You're a little older than me even. So for me, being in the States, my access to the team and being able to see them and get to see those moments live, unfortunately, are limited more to about the last 15 years. So just instead of three, I just made a few lists. And we saw on social media circulating La Manita in 2010, which was that 5 nothing win. David Villa had a goal. Pedro had a goal. And Barcelona just really, during the Pep Guardiola years, took it to Real Madrid. That was a, a memorable match to watch. And, of course, Sergio Roberto's goal against PSG. That happening last season. Lino Messi. Then this is kind of a pick-your-poison. Is it 2014? Obviously, last year's goal at the Bernabeu was a huge goal from Messi. That's up there. And then the Ronaldinho moment at the Bernabeu back in 2005, winning the Champions League against Manchester United. I think any of those just boil that, try to boil that down to three. Those are all just some of the best moments in recent FC Barcelona history with, of course, plenty of memorable moments before that. But obviously, Cruyff and coming to the club in the late 80s and really turning Barcelona into what they are now with the Youth Academy and the Dream Team in the early 90s. Really, the history of Barcelona has become so much more rich, particularly with the appearance of Lionel Messi as well in the last 12 years. So recent history has been really good history for FC Barcelona. And anything else for you for that, Frances? Yeah, I just want to add that uh, my top three are obviously my first match at the Camp Nou that I spoke about just, just, just now. Then the... 
2-0 victory uh, in the Champions League semi-finals against Madrid uh, during the Mourinho era. That was pretty cool, especially the way that Messi celebrated his second. You know, he, he was pretty much taking his heart out for, for the Bernabeu to see it, and that was great to see. And then my third one, although, you know, there's no order with this, is the, the, the time that Kuman scored the winner in extra time um, against Sampdoria to win our first ever Champions League in 1992. And I still remember running around my, my house like I was a desperate chicken. So um, it was great. Obviously many more moments, but top three, that, that's, that's them. So speaking about the past of Barcelona, let's quickly go to a potential future. And that is this week's transfer rumor, if you will. Barcelona being linked to 21-year-old attacking midfielder Arthur, a Brazilian who plays for Brazilian club Grêmio, as they just won the Libertadores. 2-1 over Lanús, and Arthur was chosen the best player in the final. Apparently, Robert Fernandez went to see the final live. And the other thing to note about Arthur is he's got a 50 million euro release clause. And this is one of those rare players, Francis, that I can say I've heard of this before. This is the second time this rumor's popped up. But I have yet, yet to physically see the player play. I mean, obviously not live even, but I've not really seen too much video of him or footage of him. So I don't really have too much of an opinion on it. It just shows that... Barcelona are covering their bases, and I guess that's a positive thing. And, of course, we know that in recent memory, Barcelona love to bring in Brazilians. Yeah, and also think the fact that Robert Fernandez is, <laughs> is doing something to justify his salary is also very good. Arthur was substituted after 50 minutes. He, you know, he had a bit of an injury, but nothing, nothing major. Uh, but he was very dominant until then. He touched the ball 47 times, and he won 10 out of the 13 duels he, he tried. Um, but having said that, and based on what we saw in midweek, I think our future has to be La Masia and then bring in established world-class stars in order to reinforce the team. So uh, although the, the Spanish and particularly the Catalan media seem to find a different guy every week, um, I still strongly believe that if you're going to sign someone that's young, it has to be someone extraordinary for it not to come out of La Masia. Yeah, I think that wraps it up. So. He's got to be something pretty good, and we always talked about getting those starters in there. So let's head to La Ronda de Preguntas, or our quick-fire questions. So we start with Peña Barcelona of Los Angeles. Assuming Vidal stays this January, do you see Semedo and Vidal splitting the right-back role, as in Semedo being in a more of attack focus than Vidal being a more defensive focus? And this coming after, of course, his performance against Mercia, where he did really show well. Uh, yes, I, I do. I do. Um, I think that it's the other way around, though. I think Semedo is the one that is stronger defensively, and Vidal is the one that struggles more defensively. I think they both have something to add, and Barca have a lot of games every single season, so it is great to see that they're both stepping up to the plate and, in a way, are competing for a starting position. And obviously, linked to this is the fact that Sergio Roberto is clearly a midfielder and has to be used there in order to develop into the great player he certainly has the potential to be. Yeah, that was actually, I think, a mistake by even my reading it that Vidal is the attacking option and Semedo obviously is a right back through and through, not really a right winger at any time. Basically the only player who has yet to play in more of a forward wing position, Jordi Alba at left back and Dinier at left back, but they've also been forward and Semedo's been primarily a right back. Kool-Aid for Life asks, I'm just amazed at what Sergi Roberto brings to the squad. Not a question, but it should be obvious to all Kool-Aids by now that he is our future. And so I guess the question I'll create out of that is Sergi Roberto still in the running to be a future starter, you'd say, in that midfield? Yeah, of course, of course. And uh, I was reading this week, 
He's been in the first team for five seasons now. He's not a starter yet, but I think there's not many people out there who wouldn't think that he's one for the future, one that is already an established player. Um, you could see the moment that he came into the game against Murcia, he changed that. And, you know, after being away with injury for, I think it's been a fortnight, um, it's great to have him back. Definitely, definitely, definitely someone that we should be counting on and is going to give us lots of moments to smile in the future. Next up from Lowell Mack, all, or The Godfather on Twitter. After seeing Alenia play, would you see him as an upgrade to Rakitic? And so, I don't know. Do you, I'm just going to take this one quickly that, again, Rakitic getting a really bad rap. I think Alenia, his time isn't yet. Let him finish in Saguna Division this year, getting maybe a sub-appearance here and there when the first team needs him. But I think he's really learning a lot in that second division, going through that, being a leader on that team. And he's one of those guys where when Elenia's time comes to the first team, I think he's a starter. And I think he comes in as a starter. So I think he will eventually take the place of Rakitic. But right now, I think we're just we're getting too harsh on Rakitic. And let's not get too high on a teenager just yet. Exactly. And also, you know, Alanya has been playing against Murcia. And Rakitic has been playing against Atletico Madrid, Valencia, Juventus. So, you know, you're talking about different levels there. Um, I think they both add great aspects that the team needs. But um, as you say, Alanya's not quite ready yet. Chris asks, if Coutinho was assigned for Barcelona, can he play on the left wing to give room for someone like Alanya as a midfielder? And the answer to that is Coutinho, yes, does play both left wing and that left midfielder role but the reason Barcelona would sign him Francesca if I'm not wrong would basically be to be the future Iniesta yes but also he's got the possibility of playing in the wing so I would say Coutinho given his quality could virtually play anywhere and I think that the, the, the main reason and the main target has to be to get him in the squad and then decide where he's going to play um, I think what Barca are lacking in order to really truly challenge for every title is a boost of quality in January and I think investing heavily in Coutinho would be would be a good decision if the price is not extortionate, which probably will be. Chris asked, better signing Coutinho or Ozil? And we actually did talk about this in our last show that was all about Ozil, where we basically both agreed that Coutinho is a better player and obviously younger and so has a higher ceiling. But Ozil, if he really is available for $20 million, I think I would take a $20 million Euro Ozil over 120 million Euro Coutinho. Yep, tbpod.link forward slash 49. It's all explained in there. Aaron7723 on Twitter asks, what's our current best possible 11 in your opinion? And we get this question a lot, but I think it changes as, as players' stock goes up and down. And we see that Ernesto Valverde is very high on starting Paulinho now in important matches. But with Sergi Roberto recovered, maybe that changes a little bit. That's a great point, and the point you're making, the fact that every week is different. For me right now, Ter Stegen and then Umtiti became in the middle. For me now, Semedo and Alba in the full-back positions. Still for me, it's Busquets, Rakitic, Iniesta. And then up front, I would, pl- I would put Messi on the right wing to put Suarez in the middle, and then Dembele in the you know, wing left. But obviously, he's not available. It doesn't look like Valverde wants to move Messi away from the center. But for me, Messi on the right, Dembele on the left, and Suarez up front. And I think that way you maximize uh, what all players can bring. But that's not going to happen. Right. So I think it's a matter of whether or not we have our, our best opinion. I think January hopefully will change some things. And more importantly, by January, I don't mean a new signing. I actually mean Dembele coming back 
when Barcelona might really have to take a hard look at moving back into their traditional 4-3-3 with Dembele out wide. So Marvlo Paul asked, how would you rate Arnetha's performances for Barcelona B so far? And he even gave us a number and said a 6. And my response to that for Arnetha would be that, and just changing the question a little bit, but people are calling for Arnetha coming up in the team. They think he's you know better than De La Feu and should get more opportunities with the first team. And it goes back to the same principle with Elena, where he is still pretty unproven. He's The difference between Arnath playing with confidence and Delufeu not playing with confidence is clearly being shown, that Arnath is is playing really well. It's his first season with Barcelona B, so he's not a youth academy prospect. And just like David Costas, who made his appearance and debut at the camp, no, these guys were brought in to be experienced players for the Segunda Division. So I think if he shows well this whole season long, he could have a place in the first team next season. How highly do you rate Arnath? Very highly, but as you're saying, and similarly to Alanya, he's not ready for it yet. Um, I would say right now, our best alternative up front, so you've got Luis Suarez and Messi that for me need to start, and I do get that Luis Suarez is annoying, and I do realise that he doesn't seem to know what the offside rule is. Maybe someone can buy him a book or just draw it for him because he doesn't seem to get it. But um, that aside, I still think he needs to start because of, of his quality and what he brings to the team and the fact that he can turn it around any minute and then you've got a world-class player back again. I think the third one in contention right now is, is um, Paco Alcácer and in a month's time, Dembele should be back. Um, anyone behind in terms of Denis Suarez, De Lufeo, etc., I don't think are at that level right now. Hopefully, they're proving, my, they're proving me wrong in the near future, but right now, I think that's where everyone is. And right now, that's where we wrap up episode number 50. So we appreciate from show one to show 50, everyone who's joined, listened to the show. And for the first time ever, we should also be very transparent on iTunes. We actually got some negative reviews on our American version of the show. And so we have to say that while we love five stars and we really appreciate the feedback, we are going to take the feedback you give us, both positive and negative, and we're going to try to improve the show upon it. So we do appreciate the feedback that we're getting, both positive and negative. And hopefully these next 50 shows that we continue to put in your ears are even better than the first 50. Well, Frances, again, it wrapped it up. If you want to keep hearing the podcast, please, we have a Patreon, the Barcelona Podcast that you can contribute, help the show with any bit of money, $1, $2, $3, anything you have to help us continue to make these shows. As well, on iTunes, it does a whole lot with the algorithm on iTunes, wherever, whatever country you're in, the U.S., U.K., Australia, Nigeria, no matter where you're listening to our show, we really appreciate your feedback. So with that said, Frances, I might even have to have you give the goodbye today because I've got to jump on a plane in a few minutes. I still have to pack. And then the next time you're going to hear from me, We'll be a little bit from Spain on the next show, just to plug that a little bit. 51, you're going to hear my voice, but I won't be in the U.S., and then after that, I'll be back. So, Frances, next week is pretty much all you. I know. How disappointing is that, isn't it? (laughs) I'm not disappointed at all, (laughs) Frances. Oh, I know. I know. I know you're not. Um, I really hope you have a great time. Uh, Hopefully, we can hear from inside the Camp Nou next week. Um, Episode 51 is going to be great. Episode 50 was a pleasure. Guys, if you are still listening to this, we love you forever and ever and ever and ever. Please share the show. Please retweet things and, and, and promote it. We bring this to you because we care. And hopefully you care enough to share our work as well. Forza, Vasa. Forza.
I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.